Section 15 of The Seven Lively Arts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seven Lively Arts by Gilbert Zeldes. The Crazy Cat That Walks by Himself. Crazy Cat, the daily comic strip of George Harriman, is, to me, the most amusing and fantastic and satisfactory work of art produced in America today. With those who hold that a comic strip cannot be a work of art, I shall not traffic. The qualities of Crazy Cat are irony and fantasy, exactly the same, it would appear, as distinguish the revolt of the angels. It is wholly beside the point to indicate a preference for the work of Anatole France, which is in the great line, in the major arts. It happens that in America, irony and fantasy are practiced in the major arts by only one or two men producing high-class trash, and Mr. Harriman, working in a despised medium without an atom of pretentiousness, is, day after day, producing something essentially fine. It is the result of a naive sensibility, rather like that of the Dionier Rousseau. It does not lack intelligence, because it is a thought-out, a constructed piece of work. In the second order of the world's art, it is superbly first-rate, and a delight. For ten years daily, and frequently on Sunday, Crazy Cat has appeared in America. In that time, we have accepted and praised a hundred fakes from Europe and Asia, silly and trashy plays, bad painting, woeful operas, iniquitous religions, Everything paste and brummagem has had its vogue with us, and a genuine, honest, native product has gone unnoticed until the year of grace 1922, a ballet brought it a tardy and grudging acclaim. Harriman is our great master of the fantastic, and his early career throws a faint light on the invincible creation which is his present masterpiece, for all of his other things were comparative failures. He could not find in the realistic framework he chose an appropriate medium for his imaginings, or even for the strange draftsmanship which is his natural mode of expression. The family upstairs seemed to the realist reader simply incredible. It failed to give him the pleasure of recognizing his neighbors in their more ludicrous moments. The dingbats, hapless wretches, had the same defect. Another strip came nearer to providing the right tone. Don Coyote, and Sancho Panzi. Harriman's mind has always been preoccupied with the mad knight of La Mancha, who reappears transfigured in Crazy Cat. And, although the inspirations are never literary, when it isn't Cervantes, it is Dickens to whom he has the greatest affinity. The Dickens mode operated in Baron Bean, a figure half macabre, half Charlie Chaplin, as man of the world. I have noted in writing of Chaplin Mr. Harriman's acute and sympathetic appreciation of the first few moments of The Kid. It is only fair to say here that he had himself done the same thing in his medium. Baron Bean was always in rags, penniless, hungry, but he kept his man Grimes, and Grimes did his dirty work. Grimes was the Baron's outlet, and Grimes, faithful retainer, held by bonds of admiration and respect, helped the Baron in his one great love affair. Like all of Harriman's people, they lived on the Enchanted Mesa, pronounced Macy, 
by Coconino, near the town of Yorba Linda. The baron was inventive. Lacking the money to finance the purchase of a postage stamp, he entrusted a love letter to a carrier pigeon. And his, Go, my Paloma, on that occasion, is immortal. Some of these characters are reappearing in Harriman's latest work, Stumble In. Of this I have not seen enough to be sure. It is a mixture of fancy and realism. Mr. Stumble himself is the Dickens character again. The sentimental, endearing innkeeper who would rather lose his only patron than kill a favorite turkey cock for Thanksgiving. I have heard that recently a litter of pups has been found in the cellar of the inn, so I should judge that fantasy has won the day. For it is Harriman's bent to disguise what he has to say in creations of the animal world, which are neither human nor animal, but each sui generis. That is how the cat started. The thought of a friendship between a cat and a mouse amused Harriman, and one day he wrote them in as a footnote to the family upstairs. On their first appearance, they played marbles while the family quarreled. And in the last picture, the marble dropped through a hole in the bottom line. An office boy named Willie was the first to recognize the strange virtues of Crazy Cat. As surely as he was the greatest of office boys, so the greatest of editors, Arthur Brisbane, was the next to praise. He urged Harriman to keep the two characters in action. Within a week, they began a semi-independent existence in a strip an inch wide under the older strip. Slowly, they were detached, were placed at one side, and naturally stepped into the full character of a strip when the family departed. In time, the Sundays appeared, three-quarters of a page, involving the whole Crazy Cat and Ignatz families and the flourishing town of Coconino, the flora and fauna of that enchanted region which Harriman created out of his memories of the Arizona desert he so dearly loves. In one of his most metaphysical pictures, Harriman presents Crazy as saying to Ignatz, I ain't a cat, and I ain't crazy. I put dots to indicate the lunatic shifting of background, which goes on while these remarks are made. Although the action is continuous and the characters motionless, it is in keeping with Harriman's method to have the backdrop in a continual state of agitation. You never know when a shrub will become a redwood or a hut a church. It's what's behind me that I am. It's the idea behind me, Ignatz. That's what I am. In an attitude of a contortionist, Crazy points to the blank space behind him, and it is there that we must look for the idea. It is not far to seek. There is a plot, and there is a theme. And considering that since 1913 or so, there have been some 3,000 strips, one may guess that the variations are infinite. The plot is that Crazy, androgynous, but, according to his creator, willing to be either, is in love with Ignat's mouse. Ignatz, who is married, but vagrant, despises the cat, and his one joy in life is to crease that cat's bean with a brick from the brickyard of Colin Kelly. The fatuous cat, Stark Young has found the perfect word for him. He is crack-brained. Takes the brick by a logic and a cosmic memory presently to be explained as a symbol of love. He cannot, therefore, appreciate the efforts of Officer B. Pup to guard him and to entrammel the activities of Ignatz Mouse, or better, Mice. A deadly war is waged between Ignatz and Officer Pup. The latter is himself romantically in love with Crazy. 
and one often sees pictures in which Crazy and Ignatz conspire together to outwit the officer, both wanting the same thing, but with motives all at cross-purposes. This is the major plot. It is clear that the brick has little to do with the violent endings of other strips, for it is surcharged with emotions. It frequently comes not at the end, but at the beginning of an action. Sometimes it does not arrive. It is a symbol. The theme is greater than the plot. John Alden Carpenter has pointed out, in the brilliant little foreword to his ballet, that Crazy Cat is a combination of Parsifal and Don Quixote, the perfect fool and the perfect knight. Ignatz is Sancho Panza, and, I should say, Lucifer. He loathes the sentimental excursions, the philosophic ramblings of Crazy. He interrupts with a well-directed brick the romantic excesses of his companion. For example, Crazy, blindfolded and with the scales of justice in his hand, declares, Things is all out of proportion, Ignatz. In what way, fool? inquires the mice, as the scene shifts to the edge of a pool in the middle of the desert. In the way of ocean, for an instinct. Well, asks Ignatz, they are plunging head down into mid-sea, and only their hind legs, tails, and words are visible. The ocean is so iniquitously distributed. They appear, each prone on a mountain peak, above the clouds, and the cat says casually across the chasm to Ignatz, Take Denver, Colorado, and Tulsa, Oklahoma. They ain't got no ocean at all. They are tossed by a vast sea, together in a packing case. While San Francisco, California, and Boston, Massachusetts, has got more oceans than they can possibly use. Whereupon Ignatz, properly, distributes a brick evenly on Crazy's noodle. Ignatz has no time for foolishness. He is a realist and sees things as they are. I don't believe in Santa Claus, says he. I'm too broad-minded and advanced for such nonsense. But Mr. Harriman, who is a great ironist, understands pity. It is the destiny of Ignatz never to know what his brick means to crazy. He does not enter into the racial memories of the cat, which go back to the days of Cleopatra of the Bubastes, when cats were held sacred. Then, on a beautiful day, a mouse fell in love with Crazy, the beautiful daughter of Cleopatra Cat. Bashful, advised by a soothsayer to write his love, he carved a declaration on a brick, and, tossing the missive, was accepted, although he had nearly killed the cat. When the Egyptian day is done, it has become the Romeonian custom to crease his lady's bean with a brick laden with tender sentiments, through the tide of dusty years. The tradition continues, but only Crazy knows this. So, at the end, it is the incurable romanticist, the victim of acute Bavariism, who triumphs. For Crazy faints daily in full possession of his illusion, and Ignatz, stupidly hurling his brick, thinking to injure, fosters the illusion and keeps Crazy happy. Not always, to be sure. Recently we beheld Crazy smoking an elegant Hawana cigar and sighing for Ignatz. The smokescreen he produced hid him from view when Ignatz passed, and before the mice could turn back, Crazy had handed over the cigar to Officer Pup and departed, saying, Looking at Officer Pup smoking himself up like a chimney is very, very interesting. 
but it is more vital that I find Ignatz. Wherefore Ignatz, thinking the smokescreen a ruse, hurls his brick, blacks the officer's eye, and is promptly chased by the limb of the law. Up to this point, you have the usual technique of the comic strip, as old as Shakespeare. But note the final picture of Crazy beholding the pursuit, himself disconsolate, unbricked, alone, muttering, Ah, there him is, playing tag with Officer Pup, just like the boom companions what they is. It is this touch of irony and pity which transforms all of Harriman's work, which relates it, for all that the material is preposterous, to something profoundly true and moving. It isn't possible to retell these pictures, but that is the only way, until they are collected and published, that I can give the impression of Harriman's gentle irony, of his understanding of tragedy, of the sancta simplicitas, the innocent loveliness in the heart of a creature more like Pan than any other creation of our time. Given the general theme, the variations are innumerable. The ingenuity never flags. I use haphazard examples from 1918 to 1923, for though the cat has changed somewhat since the days when he was even occasionally feline, the essence is the same. Like Charlot, he was always living in a world of his own, and subjecting the commonplaces of actual life to the test of his higher logic. Does Ignatz say that the bird is on the wing? Crazy suspects an error, and after a careful scrutiny of bird life, says that, From recent observation, I should say, that the wing is on the bird. Or Ignatz observes that Don Quixote is still running. Wrong, says the magnificent cat. He's either still or either running, but not both still and both running. Ignatz passes with a bag containing, he says, bird seed. Not that I doubt your word, Ignatz, says Crazy, but could I give a look? and he is astonished to find that it is birdseed after all, for he had all the time been thinking that birds grew from eggs. It is Ignatz who is impressed by a falling star, for Crazy, them that don't fall, are the miracle. I recommend Crazy to Mr. Chesterton, who, in his best moments, will understand. His mind is occupied with eternal oddities, with simple things to which his nature leaves him unreconciled. See him entering a bank and loftily writing a check for $30 million. You haven't that much money in the bank, says the cashier. I know it, says Crazy. Have you? There is a drastic simplicity about Crazy's movements. He is childlike, regarding with grave eyes the efforts of older people to be solemn, to pretend that things are what they seem, and, like children, he frightens us because none of our pretensions escapes him. A king to him is a royal cootie. Gala, says he, I always had an idea they was grand and magnificent and wonderful and majestic. But my goodness, it ain't so. He should be given to the enfant terrible of Hans Anderson, who knew the truth about kings. He is, of course, blinded by love. Wandering alone in springtime, he suffers the sight of all things pairing off. The solitude of a lonesome pine worries him, and when he finds a second lonesome pine, he comes in the dead of night and transplants one to the side of the other, so that in due course nature has her way. 
But there are moments when the fierce pang of an unrequited passion dies down. In these blissful hours, my soul will know no strife, he confides to Mr. Bombill B., who, while the conversation goes on, catches sight of Ignatz with a brick, flies off, stings Ignatz from the field, and returns to hear, In my cosmos there will be no fever of discord. All my emotions will function in harmony and kind feelings. Or we see him at peace with Ignatz himself. He has bought a pair of spectacles, and seeing that Ignatz has none, cuts them in two, so that each may have a monocle. He is gentle, and gentlemanly, and dear. And these divagations of his are among his loveliest moments, for when irony plays about him, he is as helpless as we are. To put such a character into music was a fine thought, but Mr. Carpenter must have known that he was foredoomed to failure. It was a notable effort, for no other of our composers had seen the possibilities. Most, I fear, did not care to lower themselves by the association. Mr. Carpenter caught much of the fantasy. It was exactly right for him to make the opening a parody, the afternoon nap of a fawn. The Class A fit, the catnip blues, were also good. There exists a Sunday crazy of this very scene. It is 1919, I think, and shows hundreds of crazy cats in a wild, abandoned revel in the catnip field, a rout, a bacchanal, a satyr dance, an erotic festival, with our own crazy playing the viola in the corner, and Ignatz, who has been drinking, going to sign the pledge. Mr. Carpenter almost missed one essential thing, the ecstasy of crazy when the brick arrives at the end. Certainly, as Mr. Baum danced it, one felt only the triumph of Ignatz. One did not feel the grand leaping up of crazy's heart, the fulfillment of desire as the brick fell upon him. The irony was missing, and it was a mistake for Baum to try it, since it isn't Russian ballet crazy requires. It is American dance. One man one man only can do it right, and I publicly appeal to him to absent himself from felicity a while, and though he do it but once, though a small number of people may see it, to pay tribute to his one compeer in America, to the one creation equaling his own. I mean, of course, Charlie Chaplin. He has been urged to do many things hostile to his nature. Here is one thing he is destined to do. Until then, the ballet ought to have Johnny and Ray Dooley for its creators. And I hope that Mr. Carpenter hasn't driven other composers off the subject. There is enough there for Irving Berlin and Deems Taylor to take up. Why don't they? The music it requires is a jazzed tenderness, as Mr. Carpenter knew. In their various ways, Berlin and Taylor could accomplish it. They may not be able to write profoundly in the private idiom of crazy. I have preserved his spelling, and the quotations have given some sense of his style. The accent is partly Dickens and partly Yiddish, and the rest is not to be identified, for it is crazy. It was odd that in Vanity Fair's notorious rankings, crazy tied with Dr. Johnson, to whom he owes much of his vocabulary. There is a real sense of the color of words and a high imagination in such passages as The Echoing Cliffs of Kaibito and on the north side of Wildcat Peak, the snow squaws shake their winter blankets and bring forth a chill which rides the wind with goad and spur 
hurling with an icy hand, rime and frost, upon a dreamy land, musing in the lap of spring. And there is the rhythm of wonder and excitement in, Ah, Ignatz, it's awful. He's got his legs cut off above his elbows, and he's wearing shoes, and he's standing on top of the water. Nor, even with Mr. Harriman's help, will a ballet get quite the sense of his shifting backgrounds. He is alone in his freedom of movement, in his large pictures and small. The scene changes at will. It is actually our one work in the expressionistic mode. While Crazy and Ignatz talk, they move from mountain to sea, or a tree, stunted and flattened with odd ornaments of spots or design, grows suddenly long and thin, or a house changes into a church. The trees in this enchanted mesa are almost always set in flower pots, with Coptic and Egyptian designs in the foliage, as often as on the pot. There are adobe walls, fantastic cactus plants, strange fungus and growths, and they compose designs. For whether he be a primitive or an expressionist, Harriman is an artist. His works are built up. There is a definite relation between his theme and his structure, and between his lines, masses, and his page. His masterpieces in color show a new delight, for he is as naive, and as assured, with color as with line or black and white. The little figure of crazy, built around the navel, is amazingly adaptable, and Harriman economically makes him express all the emotions with a turn of the hand, a bending of that extraordinarily starched bow he wears around the neck, or with a twist of his tail, and he has had much to express, for he has suffered much. I return to the vast enterprises of the Sunday pictures. There is one constructed entirely on the bias. Ignatz orders Crazy to push a huge rock off its base, and then to follow it downhill. Down they go, crashing through houses, uprooting trees, tearing tunnels through mountains, the boulder first, crazy so intently after that he nearly crashes into it when it stops. He toils painfully back uphill. Did it gather any moss? asks Ignatz. No. That's what I thought. Little philosopher, comments crazy. Always he seeks the truth, and always he finds it. There is the great day in which Crazy hears a lecture on the ectoplasm, how it soars out into the limitless ether to roam willy-nilly, unleashed, unfettered, and unbound, which becomes, for him, Just imagine having your ectospasm running around, willum and nilum, among the limitless ether. Golly, it's unbelievable. Until a toy balloon, which looks like Ignat's, precipitates a heroic gesture and a tragedy. And there is the greatest of all, the epic, the Odyssean wanderings of the door. Crazy beholds a dormouse, a little mouse with a huge door. It impresses him as being terrible that a mice so small, so delicate, should carry around a door so heavy with weight. At this point their odyssey begins. They use the door to cross a chasm. A door is so useless, Without a house is hitched to it. It changes into a raft, and they go downstream. It has no economical value. They dine off the door. It lacks the very, very essentials of helpfulness. It shelters them from a hailstorm. Historically, it is all wrong and misleading. It fends the lightning. 
As a thing of beauty, it fails in every respect. It shelters them from the sun, and while Crazy goes on to deliver a lecture, You never see Mr. Steve Dor, or Mr. Torridor, or Mr. Cuspidor doing it, do you? And, Can you imagine my little friend's Ignat's mice bothering himself with a door? His little friend Ignatz has appeared with a brick. Unseen by Crazy, he hurls it. It is intercepted by the door, rebounds, and strikes Ignatz down. Crazy continues his advice until the Dormouse shears off, and then Crazy sits down to concentrate his mind on Ignatz and wonder where he is at. Such is our Crazy. Such is the work which America can pride itself on having produced and can hastily set about to appreciate, it is rich with something we have too little of, fantasy. It is wise with pitying irony. It has delicacy, sensitiveness, and an unearthly beauty. The strange, unnerving, distorted trees, the language inhuman, unanimal, the events so logical, so wild, are all magic carpets and fairy foam, all charged with unreality. Through them wanders crazy, the most tender and the most foolish of creatures, a gentle monster of our new mythology. End of section 15